Welcome back to Heddles Blowout. I'm David Shuck, managing editor of Heddles, here with co-host Reed Nelson. How you doing, Reed? Doing okay, David. How are you doing? I'm doing great because we're talking about the history of denim, part two. If you were here last week, we sort of covered how a uh, denim's early, early origins in Europe as an obscure sailor's cloth. But as we both know, it developed into probably the most ubiquitous fabric in the world since then. Um, so last week we uh, talked about France's serge denims and Italy's genuine jeans fabric and how both uh, sort of developed independently but influenced the uh, Great Britain's textile production and what we sort of know now as denim, which is you know a three-by-one twill um, fabric made of cotton with a indigo on the outside and white on the inside. Oh, we ended last week there, um, but we all sort of know denim as an American fabric as something that is uh, uniquely uh, from the United States. But how did it get there? That's what we're sort of diving into today of like how textile production and cotton growth sort of crossed the Atlantic and created the environment that uh, built blue jeans or blue denim jeans. Cause like at this point, denim and jeans are still two separate fabrics that are very confusing. Um, that doesn't really get resolved until the 1960s, but we'll get there in a few weeks. All right. You, you, you ready, Reed? Let's do it. Okay. So uh, first thing I wanted to get into is uh, Betsy Ross. You know, Betsy Ross, that like, uh, story that we always hear in elementary school about how she sewed the first American flag out of uh, just scrap fabrics that she like spun at home and wove it herself. And now it's this like hard scrabble tale of how like American ingenuity could just do things just because they needed to get done. Um, well, there's nothing really to back up that story. It's entirely sort of American myth making about her making the first flag. But there is some truth in that it was probably homespun because colonial America had no ability to produce fabrics of their own. Um, so to break down, I guess, the stages of what it takes to make fabric, you've got to grow or harvest a fiber, which is like cotton or wool or linen or silk or what have you. And then it has to be spun into a long, cohesive yarn. Uh, and then it has to be woven or knit from that yarn into a fabric. And uh, the United States, or uh, proto-United States, America, the British colony, uh, in the mid-1700s was only designed to do the first part of growing those fibers and had no ability to do the second two at all. And was sort of used purely as an exploitative uh, arm of the uh, British Empire, which is a theme that we'll see in this episode of... Uh, sort of the opposite of trickle-down economics, but more like trickle-down exploitation, where each successive rung with less power is further exploited by the one above it. Getting into pre-revolutionary colonialism and how, I guess, economics worked back then, of that the United States was just this like uh, place that was designed to be an extension of the undesirable parts of the British Empire, that they didn't have enough land in order to grow cotton, grow tobacco, grow sugar, things like that, because it's a tiny, tiny island. Um, 
And there was a thing that you also might have heard about in elementary school called triangular trade, um, which was the horrible practice of uh, people being captured and enslaved in Africa and then being transported uh, against their will to the Americas, where they then worked on plantations where they produced raw materials like sugar, cotton, tobacco, indigo, timber, things like that. And that were then sent back to Europe, who turned them into finished goods like fabric and furniture and other things that only they had the technological ability to do so. Uh, so the only way you could get mass production fabrics in the U.S. was to import them, largely from Great Britain. And there were inventions around this time that like, sort of kick-started the Industrial Revolution and made mass production of fabric much more possible. This thing called the the spinning jenny, ever heard of that one? I have not. I would not have guessed it was something for yarn. Mm-hmm. It it sounds sort of uh, sort of odd, sort of uh, definitely uh, non heteroconformative. But the the spinning jenny was a new machine in the 1760s that could spin the same amount of yarn as eight hand spinners, uh, just doing at home, and. Things like that were kept in England. It was a like method to keep the colonies poor and the tech back home so they could sort of keep this clean split of the colonies just being a uh, supplier of raw materials back in. And that was sort of like one of the main reasons that American colonists rebelled against the British was to shake off this unequal relationship. But yeah, home spinning was uh, sort of a method of protest against British taxes on imported fabrics and other goods through things that like the the Townsend Acts, which uh, little known um, tax that was placed on the U.S. for all imported British goods. So they were sort of just like stuck there, American colonists at the time, where all they could do was create these raw materials for the mother country, and then they were forced to consume the finished goods that they had no other ability to make. And... Uh, yeah, we're, we're very much like in this sort of, I don't know, Monsanto-esque or like Tyson chicken type situation in today's parlance where they had, or they were stuck in this just like one specific um, economic place where all they could do was fulfill the needs of the mother country, but not really develop anything beyond that. Um, they were purposely kept at an inferior level of economic development and dependency to just keep making those raw materials that the uh, British Empire needed, and also to be a market for their finished goods that they you know, were sort of captive in that way where they could only buy those things. And the U.S. was very, or proto-U.S., excuse me, uh, was very resource-rich, and this was a way that the British Empire could sort of easily keep them down. So the Pete Townshend Acts was uh, what the, uh, the WHO was called before they <laughs> reconvened. Wait, later on in the UK. Is that is that a real thing? No. I mean, they're called the Townshend Acts, but uh and also Pete Townsend was with the Who, but yeah, you know, that could be a fun thing. That, like if they were if they the Who was a history band, they could have been called the Townsend Acts and like I don't know, 12 people would have understood it. And they could have shown up and like chanted no taxation without representation at their party or at their yeah. uh, their shows. Behind Blue Eyes was actually about Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Very much. <laughs> I, I don't know if he has. Blue um, eyes. Does anyone know if he had blue eyes? I mean, this is well before color photography. He had like a super nasally voice by all accounts. He could have sounded like 
like Godfrey. Like he could have sounded like you know, like anything though. We really wouldn't know. We have no idea. Yeah. I thought there was like one very like grainy recording that someone got of him on like an Edison wax record where he does sound like sort of like a dweeb. Do we know that's not just the wax record though? <laughs> Do they have no? We don't. Just like everyone was. Them? Everyone was a dweeb back then, just sort of like uh, people didn't dream in color before color TV. Wait, again, is that I, I don't know if this is true or not. No, that's a real thing that people apparently dreamed in black and white before there was color TV. I don't believe it, but it is a thing that I've heard quoted very, very many what about, times. What about before black and white TV? They didn't dream. They dream. They dreamed in woodcuts and uh, <laughs> silhouettes. They just typed out incoherent novels in their sleep. Uh-huh. They were illuminated manuscripts. Before. Yeah. You know, like uh, in the medieval Very era. Ended. Yeah. So the Townsend Acts were like sort of thing that came after the Stamp Act and it was just like anything that was finished in the UK that came back over, um, they had to pay taxes on. And they didn't like that um, because sort of like uh, Washington, D.C. these days, it was no taxation or it was taxation without representation um, as they had no say in the rule of the British empire, what was imposed upon them while having to pay very hefty fees and taxes to them. And all of their activity was, was governed by them. Um, Even though the UK was put, or it keeps saying the UK, but they weren't the UK at this point. It was the British empire. It was the crown. Um, that uh, imposed all these fines and fees to make up for the uh, all the money that they spent on the French and Indian War in the 1760s. Um, in their attempt to like protect the colonies from I- encroaching uh, French colonialism and also the indigenous peoples that had the real right to that land. Um, but, you know, we could go all the way back there. But just suffice it to say, the, the United States didn't really have the ability to create any... Uh, like significant uh, amount of mass-produced fabric, and this was largely at the design of the British Empire. The U.S. lagged behind at the start of the Industrial Revolution and remained agrarian for far longer at the design of Great Britain and Europe. And uh, one of the things that, like, this was even codified, it wasn't just, like, some casual thing of, like, let's just hide this all from the Americans. That was literally illegal, um, to import textile production knowledge from the U.S. or uh, to the U.S. from uh, Great Britain, and uh, there was some though, but it was like really minimal. There's a record of George Washington apparently visiting the first denim mill in the United States, which was in Massachusetts in 1789. Although I can't find any documentation of that beyond just it being mentioned on a bunch of different sources. Um, but apparently, yeah, there was denim being woven in Massachusetts in the late 1700s. Does it say why he wanted to go to a denim mill or were they like, was this a campaign stop? Like a hanger? Maybe. I mean, that would make sense of like, I'm here with you. I'm George Washington. I wear the the fabric of the people that will not be codified as such for another 150 years. And I, some reason talk like JFK. (laughs) His weird old wooden chompers. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, but like the capacity for production in the U S was so minimal at the time. Like I, I found a, a chart that showed in 1790, the U S had about 2000 operating spindles, which is the machine, like the spinning Jenny 
um, that spins fiber into weavable textile yarn. And compare that to the U, uh, not the UK, Great Britain, um, at that time had 2.4 million. So like literally a thousand times more capacity of, uh, making fabric. Um, which leads us to a true American folk hero that, uh, not a lot of people talk about named Samuel Slater. You ready to hear about this guy? He has a very, very fascinating story that, uh, he is basically the Prometheus, the firebringer of American textile production, which is not nearly as boring as it sounds. <laughs> the, the Prometheus, the firebringer of textile production is by far the kindest like uh, historical accolade I think ever applied to Samuel Slater. That is the, uh, the epithet that I would like. You know, I think I could die a happy man if I was known as the Prometheus, the firebringer of textile production to some, I don't know, moon base in the future. I feel like um, petition to change his headstone. <laughs> you got to find it. But, uh, good old Sam was sold into indentured uh, servitude in a cotton mill in England from age 10 to 22, which is a very common practice. You know, the kids, they had small hands. They could reach in and uh, uh, change things out of these moving parts very easily. Um, and they were also very gullible. If you're uh, talking about the like size of people's appendages and their gullibility as far as why they're good workers, I feel like the industry is not great. Yeah, well, we're just getting back to the Oompa Loompas here <laughs> and how exploitative the uh, Wonka Chocolate Factory really was. But he didn't actually steal them. He was he knew that there was interest in textile knowledge in the United States. And he sent all of these uh, like secret messages to a uh, guy in Rhode Island who was trying to set up a textile mill. And in 1790, he got this guy to sponsor his passage over to the New World. Or it wasn't the New World back then. That entire term is basically coded with, uh, I don't know, uh, Western and like supremacist ideology. But he got passage over to America and he memorized everything that he could, including the idea of the spinning jenny. And he made it all from memory at this like first mill town that was developed in Rhode Island. Um, Who is the other guy? Do we know or is this guy just lost to history? The, we do know who the other guy is, but he's not nearly as important. And I That's forgot fair. his name. No, you're, it's, I, I was just curious if he was just like Lot's wife. You know, yeah, like the Bible, like yeah. the entire story about Lot, and it's like, what's his wife's name? I don't know, wife. He's he's actually the uh, the smoking man from the X Files that's just there to shepherd along the next chapter in American history. I respect that. He's like Caron <laughs> guiding us through the river sticks. Yeah, just like I'm not important. It's what it's what's happening that's important. Um, but uh, Sam Slater would sort of be responsible for the entire development of the American textile scene. And uh, it's just like thinking about the history of ideas back then. You couldn't just like attach a file to a an email and say like, oh, yeah, this is how you do it. Or like look up on YouTube how to set up a, a water wheel and a power loom. Um, this was something that either had to like you had to import an engineer or have a book very, very well documented. And this was basically what Sam Slater did was the. He was the idea like on a boat that came over and had to set it up manually, which is just sort of like mind blowing thinking about it in today's era where we're talking to each other from three different corners of the country. But no, so he like he was, what was the Da Vinci Code Holy Grail was a person? 
right? That was the whole, that was the trick at the end of that book. So I apologize for any spoilers. Uh, but so, yeah, so he just, he, he kept this thing on the inside. The book was his brain. Mm-hmm. The book was his brain. It was like in, uh, the book of Eli, that, uh, terrible guilty pleasure, um, Denzel Washington movie about post-apocalyptic America where he's just memorized the Bible, but he's blind. He's and he blind, can, correct? The book, of, book can, of Eli is the Bible. That's the book they're referring to in that movie? Supposedly. It is, it is the new James Bible that he has memorized. But in this instance, it was how to make a spinning Jenny. Not like in my world, I feel like that's a better thing. Like I would watch book of Eli two spinning Jenny. Although I feel like everyone would think it was an entirely different film than what we were <laughs> anticipating. Um, but yeah, if you're uh, listening, Hollywood producers, it's that's free. That's on us. It wasn't just the like mechanisms that he brought over. It was also the entire like mill town culture of, uh, you know, bringing in a lot of young people with small hands to be able to work all of these uh, um, menial jobs, as well as, uh, you know, like the entire culture surrounding it, that like Sam Slater had his own um, ideology that he was imposing on mill workers of like, oh, we should have these mill towns where like people can live on site and people will be treated well and they'll have a company church and Sunday school and a company store and everything that they need will be taken after, even though it's sort of robbing these people of a lot of their autonomy, which like we'll get into in a minute. But uh, yeah, it's just interesting. The influence that one guy can have just because he has the knowledge of this, of like all these other things that were imposed and to several generations of mill workers and factory workers was sort of started here because this is the way that this one guy thought things should be run. Well, it sounds also like, he he kind of established the way that like mine towns set themselves up afterwards, right? Where it was like they could only folks who worked in the mine could only shop at the mine owned stores, which wouldn't even take regular currency sometimes. So they would get paid in two different currencies and all that crazy stuff. Oh, absolutely. It was like if you want to talk about monoculture and like and the dissolution of the individual worker, like this is where it starts in the US. Um and uh, he was known as an American hero that uh, President Andrew Jackson, decidedly not an American hero, uh, called Sam Slater the father of the American Industrial Revolution. But in England, he was commonly known as Slater the traitor. It, it works. It's not great, mm-hmm. but it works. It's much punchier than father of the American Industrial Revolution. Absolutely. And, and it was sitting there. You know, it's like if you got a last name like Slater and you do that, like that's what comes next. You don't have a choice. That's neither do the people that are giving you the nickname. It's the best one. But he had a like ridiculous level influence on American textile production that textile like output in the United States grew literally a thousand times in the period between 1790 and like when he died in the 1830s that like there were 2.8 million spindles in 1832 versus 2000 in 1790, just like almost an incomprehensible level of growth. And when he died in 1835, his net worth was literally 0.1% of the entire US GDP. He was like one of the richest people to have, uh, to have lived in that period of American history. 
Did he build like I want to know? I want like an MTV Cribs on on Sammy. Like, I, did he build a castle? Because I feel like he imported everything from England. Uh, so, like, I, I want to know like what kind of house he lived in. I didn't find anything about his house. It did say that he had uh, many, many children, and uh, apparently had a great marriage with his wife. Many, that, many? Uh, how many, many? many uh, like, like eight. Is, oh, okay, that's many, many. Uh, Twelve kids. Uh, Cheaper by the dozen. They made a movie about that. <laughs> yeah, he was a uh, a very um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, prolific guy in every aspect. He's prolific. Yeah, he's efficient mm-hmm. man who man who prize getting things done. <laughs> uh, you ever read uh, Johnny Tremaine? Read. I think we might have talked about this before. Yeah, big Johnny Tremaine fan. When I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, child labor apprentice uh, becomes radicalized. Uh, an insurgent uh, uh, militiaman. Yeah, that's, just, like, that's, you know, big, that's big Minuteman propaganda. That's big, the big Minuteman industry. John, what's wild to me, and I, and I might have said this before, but Johnny Tremaine, like you call it child labor, which it absolutely is because I think he's like 13 or 14, maybe even younger. But in my head, because I read it when I was like eight, I was like, yo, that dude's, that's an adult. Like that yeah. is, that is a grown man going off to war. And now I think about it, I'm like, nah, it's like really not a grown man going off to war. But yeah. So yeah, I read, I love Johnny Tremaine. Mm-hmm. Well, these changes in the uh, mills and the change in the workforce sort of killed the Johnny Tremaines of the era, um, both literally and figuratively, I guess, because like, uh, the change to mill work was like, and, and factory work was complete and fundamental shift for how work was done in the United States is like prior to industrialization, there were skilled artisans that had to devote their lives really to focusing on a specific craft. So, and the production was thus controlled by people who did the thing. Um, and there were organizations that were created to maintain the quality and order of each profession. I was say it's like Roy Denham being like, I'm going to make two pairs of jeans this year. Exactly. He, he, he controls, controls he controls the means. He controls the means, which we will get to in future episodes. Um, so what was Johnny Tremaine? Uh, Johnny Tremaine was a little, you know, professional because he was a, or on his way to being a little professional is like these folks like typically followed the apprentice system, which was, you know, guilds of like you had silversmiths and like uh, shoemakers and candlestick makers and things like that, where it required a certain level of prior knowledge to do the job that such skilled labor like had to be independently operated. Um, so a young person would study under like a master shoemaker or whatever. And after a few years would become a journeyman shoemaker who could sell their own shoes and then evolve, you know, like a Pokemon to their final destination of a master shoemaker that could train apprentices themselves. Jiro uh, dreams of reselling. Exactly. Yeah. If you work at Jiro, then maybe someday you'll get to cook the rice and, uh, you know, cook the eggs. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> when maybe. You're, when you're 64. Yeah. He has to die first, but you know, uh, fingers crossed he gets to hang in there till we can go. Right. Uh, but yeah, these like this apprentice journeyman master process, like kept it relatively insulated and in control of the people that were doing the work. And they knew every step of the process, you know, could negotiate their own wages and rates and had much more agency as professionals. 
But with the rise of industrialization, all the pieces of each of these crafts was broken down into little bite-sized pieces that could be done by people that hadn't devoted their lives to it. Um, and so instead of having, you know, like one person that knew every step of how to say, make a shoe, you had like different groups of people of like, one was just, you know, cutting the leather. One was doing the, uh, the sewing, this like the upper to the bottom. One was like, you know, tanning leather. One was making laces. Um, it was entirely spread out. So instead of being controlled all by one person that saw the, uh, production through from beginning to end, it was instead controlled by these new wealthy businessmen who had the capital to invest in the large overhead needed to produce at scale. For those, so, one, for those wondering, this is still how it works at some place like Alden, uh, the shoe company, for instance, on that Norwegian split toe boot that they do. There's like only two people in the company that know how to do that. And maybe they were joking to me, but they said they didn't fly together when I had asked them about it. Just like <laughs> something happened. They're like, no, they actually don't fly together. And mm. but yeah, their, their responsibility is basically that toe um, on the entire boot, which I do, you know, so it's, it's essentially the same, the same system that was adopted in what is that? 1790. It began. Yeah, yeah, in the 1790s and like onwards during the American Industrial Revolution, because like when you only, you're the only person that knows how to do that toe, like you can charge a premium because like you know if uh, you decide not to do that toe, they, they got to stop selling those toe shoes. And then the toe shoes are gone, gone for forever. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it's split down into all these different unskilled workers, I mean unskilled in air quotes, it still like took some time, just not the devotion of one's whole life to make these things. They couldn't demand nearly as high of a wage and often worked, you know, much longer hours for, for less pay and like worse conditions as they like didn't have any agency at that point. Um, so this was like most well uh, exemplified in mill towns, at least in textile production, um, which were the ones set up by people like Samuel Slater, where uh, these mill towns were built like on a river primarily to take advantage of water power. And like the most famous one was probably Lowell, Massachusetts, which was opened by Henry Cabot Lowell. And there were just like a bunch of others uh, that I've got a list here of all the different mill towns in Massachusetts that uh, were started purely because they wanted to make fabric of them. Are you ready for this? Hit me with it. We got... Adams, Amesbury, Athol, Attleboro, Chicopee, Clinton, Dalton, Fall River, Fitchburg, Framingham, Gardner, Grafton, Greenfield, Haverhill, Holyoke, Hopedale, Hudson, Lawrence, Lowell, Ludlow, Lynn, Maynard, Merrimack, Methuen, Milford, Milbury, Monson, New Bedford, North Adams, North Anvil, Northbridge, Orange, Palmer, Pittsfield, Rowley, Russell, Southbridge, Taunton, Uxbridge, Waltham, Ware, Webster, Westboro, Winchenden, and Worcester, not Worcester. You sure you didn't leave any out? Uh, probably <laughs> quick. So when, uh, f I thought fall river was Four river for most of my childhood because I had a friend with a very thick accent from fall river. Ah, fall river. <laughs> and I just assumed it. Yeah. It was like, I was just like, Hey, he's saying four river. Yeah. Nope. And these are just the towns that are in Massachusetts. Just like there were this many more again in like Connecticut, Maine, New Hampshire, uh, Vermont, all these places. It's a lot of milk uh, towns. 
It's a lot of mill towns. I mean, I went to college in a mill town that the uh, old mill, Fort Andros, was converted into a hip movie theater and like a radio station and like a bunch of people had offices in it. And it was where uh, the mini storage was where all the college kids would put their stuff for the summer. That is the definition of a multi-use building right there. That's a lot. Very multi-use. Yeah, I think it had a brewery in it too and there were art classes taught in it. Just these mills were enormous. Um, like the and, plant. Mm, very much. And uh, like, like mill workers were often children in uh, Britain, mill workers in New England were often young unmarried women um, that usually worked like 12 to 14 hours a day, uh, half a day on Saturday. They like would stay in, like they were away from their families because a lot of these uh, families were agrarian and they just like, like, oh, our daughter isn't married off yet. Let's go have her earn some money for us by working in a mill. And they slept like four to a room and two to a bed, most usually in a boarding house near the mill. And this was the development of like life by the clock of, you know, usually people would do things like sun up to sundown and sort of work at their own leisure where these towns would have giant bells that would signal the wake up time, breakfast time, like end of work time, bedtime, and like everything rang by the bell. Um, and a little known fact, if you, the bell rang while you were being punished, you got to go free. Hence the term, saved by the bell. Really? No, no, that, that just made that up. Um. <laughs> I was, yeah, I, see, I, I thought that was either a boxing term or a classroom term. No, the term for that is actually much more wait, gruesome. Wait, is that, or is it the one that I've heard where they used to like tie a bell to passed out drunks in cold weather climates? to their fingers to see if they'd like bury them alive. Is that the real? Yes, that is the one where they, they had uh, saved by the bell was from safety coffins that if they buried someone who was like merely in a coma, they would tie a bell to their finger and then they would like put the bell up at the, the gravestone um, connected by a string. And if they woke up and started flailing around, they would ring the bell and people would, you know, come and dig them up. I wonder if there were like repeat bell offend. Like I know per people in my life, for instance, that like, it's like, yeah, did you hear about, you know, like Steve, it's like, they got the bell again. Uh, um, bell fetishists. Like, or no, just like people who passed out in public enough times that it was just like, yeah, they buried this dude again. I don't know what to tell you. Like, is that how quickly they would handle it? Or is these like people who are like in longer comas who would just snap out out of nowhere? I don't know. But I'd like to think there were at least few people that had it as a fetish to like be stuck in the uh, in the ground and like ring the bell. <laughs> Help me. Yeah, that's like the new David Cronenberg's Crash, but it's about people who are bell ringers in the 1800s. <laughs> Don't kink shame. Mm -hmm. Oh, never. I would never. I just think it's funny. <laughs> um, What's your thing? It's like, man, I really like getting buried alive with the bell tied around my finger having everyone Dang. vacate the premises and see if someone comes and gets me the, like the young women that worked at these uh mill towns were able to go home and visit their families in the summer and it was like sort of exploitative but also offered young women a degree of freedom not allowed before of like living away from their families and or their husbands so it's sort of a weird parallel here to like the way that we often discuss oh, like for a half day on Sunday they lived away from their families 
Oh no, they were like they they were away from their families, like living at these mill towns, and their yeah. families might be like an entire state away. Yeah, but the, it seems like they were working their waking hours, and then they had like oh, like they the, absolutely yeah, like six hours a week. It was like you live away from your family, pretty much. The, the rest of the time, you were sticking your hands in machinery that could only accept your hands. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like reading some of the press at the time about how these mill towns were handled, it's very reminiscent of like the way that a lot of uh, brands sort of uh, propagandize how treatment of like workers are in like Bangladesh and other developing countries that are doing the exact same work um, as we're talking about with mill towns of like, oh, they can like earn a living for themselves and be away from their families and like be independent. But the cost of it is just unbelievably exploitative by today's standards. Oh, uh, have a little uh, excerpt from uh, Mind Among the Spindles, which was an account from 1844 describing what it was like in one of these mill towns, um, which is also incredibly propagandized. Uh, you ready for this? Hey, with it. Okay. My visit to Lowell was merely for one day in the company with Mr. Emerson's party, be the pride and boast of New England as an author and philosopher. Being engaged by the Lowell factory people to lecture them in a winter course on historical biography, of course the lectures were delivered in the evening after the mills were closed. The girls were then working 70 hours a week, yet as I looked at them in the large audience, and I attended more to them than the lecture, I saw no signs of weariness among them. There they sat row behind row in their own lyceum, a large hall wainscoted with mahogany and platform carpet, well-lighted, provided with a handsome table, desk, and seat, and adorned with portraits of a few worthies. And as they thus sat listening to their lecture, all wakeful and interested, all well-dressed and ladylike, I could not but feel my heart swell at the thought of what such a sight would be with us. The difference is not in rank. For these young people were all daughters of parents who earned their bread with their own hands. It is not in the amount of wages, however, usual that supposition is, for they were then earning from one to three dollars a week besides their food. The children one dollar, the second-rate workers two dollars, and the best three. The cost of their dress and necessary comforts being much above what the same class expend in this country. It is not in the amount of toil, for as I have said, they work 70 hours per week, the difference was in their superior culture. Their minds are kept fresh and strong and free by knowledge and power of thought. And this is the reason why are they not why they are not worn and depressed under their labors. So it's a little bit very propagandized here of like, oh, they work 70 hours a week, but they are smart and of superior stock and have good knowledge, and therefore they aren't, you know, tired and uh uh, exhausted from working literally two manual labor jobs back to back by our standards. That sounded like, like a, the novel, a separate piece describing the all girls school. What mm-hmm. that was, that was from when? 1844 in uh Tynemouth. Yeah. So like, this is literally the Lowell like mill town. Time uh, like a poor man tell that didn't quite work out. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was a name and like, I apologize to any time myths out there, but it just like, sounds like something that, that like Silicon Valley tried that didn't work, you know, like in a care or something like that. Tain myth. Yeah. I don't know. 
it's just like so ridiculous to read how whitewashed this is of like, here's a little bit more. Uh, they begin with a poorer chance for health than our people for the health of the new England women generally is not good owing to circumstances of climate and other influences. But among the 3,800 women and girls in the Lowell mills, when I was there, the average of health was not lower than elsewhere. And the disease, which was most mischievous was the same that proves most fatal over the whole country consumption. And while there, while there were no complaints peculiar to mill life, the average of health was not lower than elsewhere is like setting the baseline at cholera and tuberculosis. Yes. Yeah. And they, she continues here at Waltham where I saw the mills and conversed with the people. I had an opportunity of observing the invigorating effects of mind in a life of labor. It's just like the most Horatio Algerian, like capitalist bullshit here of like, it's, it's literally like in, Work will set you free. I do not want to make like uh, asides to the Holocaust here, but that is the message that's coming out of these mill towns of like, oh, these people are working so much and that's why they're happy and healthy, even though they're like working themselves to death here of the same rates of all these rampant diseases. They make it sound like the dead poet society, but make it a mill. Like pretty much they're having these intellectually stimulating conversations on hour 13 of a brutal shift. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is what textile production was like uh, at this time period in the U.S. And, like, this is how we got, you know, the infrastructure that could make denim. Like, it wasn't all that pretty, but, like, this is sort of the scaling that had to happen by hook or by crook to get to a country that could produce the amount of fabric to actually clothe itself from something other than homespun. Attention, blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle Shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. And now we're back. And uh, so we've gone over the the history in the like late 1700s and like early to mid 1800s about how the United States had the capability to make all of this cloth and textile, but we didn't really talk about where all the raw materials were coming from, because uh, like the United States being a British colony beforehand, like they were being used exclusively to create those raw materials for the mother country, but. Where was the United States getting their dye stuffs and their raw fibers in order to make all this fabric? So in the, uh, I guess, 1700s, indigo was a hugely sought after uh, plant, I guess, for dye purposes, as it, as it still kind of is. So in the 1730s, a 16-year-old named Eliza Lucas brought some indigo over from Europe, planted it in South Carolina to see if it would grow because the South Carolina soils were pretty unforgiving at that point. Um, and it turned out indigo was perfect for South Carolina, which was tragic for just about everyone else. Um, but she ended up growing it well. Um, they began planting it excessively. And then it looks like in Georgia – 
Um, that was the impetus that they, they moved over to Georgia at some point. And then, um, according to historians that they said that, uh, slavery becoming legal in Georgia was basically because Indigo became the main export in South Carolina. So governors in Georgia decided to legalize it to keep that, uh, both agrarian and slave or, uh, industry going. Indigo uh, is canceled. Yeah, it should be. I mean, it's <laughs> like, it, it's not like it's it ever really comes from from uh, places. It, at least historically, it seems that we're big on human rights. Always big on natural <laughs> resources, not so much on on human rights. So mm-hmm. yeah, they the indigo production essentially creates an indigo boom because the British Empire can cheaply import it into. Uh, Europe and the demand shoots through the roof and there are a few characters that end up making a lot of money on Indigo. But uh, once the revolutionary war wrapped up, England didn't really want to buy our Indigo or much of anything from us. So they ended up outsourcing that to India, which I guess would be the first instance of that happening with American Mm -hmm. manufacturing Offshoring, but it was, it was, a like one of the most valuable commodities apparently of, of like the early, early colonies. They didn't talk about it much. Um, and we don't talk about it much probably because the history is incredibly dark and sad. And, Mm -hmm. uh, we tend to gloss over things that are dark and sad or try to paint them with a new veneer. But yeah, it, indigo was, was a, uh, essentially a slave trade sustaining crop. In, in America and if and in, in worse uh, worse scenarios I guess a slave introducing like a slave economy introducing crop in certain mm-hmm. areas oh yeah and it was to the point where like indigo was basically being used in place of currency right is yeah. it was so prominent down there yeah and you know indigo dyed cloth was hard to come by elsewhere too so the value of that was high so like a bolt of fabric had had great value to uh, the monsters of the triangle trade. Hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of people like don't realize cause like now 99.9% of all indigo that is used in denim is synthesized. It's like chemically created in a lab to make, you know, like a little brick of pure indigo, but you have to grow so much plant indigo to have enough to like dye anything. And the process is so intensive that, uh, it's sort of impressive that indigo has been around for so long and used in so many different societies, like all the way back to human prehistory. And yeah, it's, it's still something that is used continuously. And like indigo is like probably the most human of all dye stuffs and like of all shades that like literally every single like prehistory human civilization has been found with some sort of indigo. I mean, I don't want to say literally everyone, but like a lot of them. And it grows like it grows a bunch of places. Like it's you know, there's indigo in China and India mm-hmm. and South America. But like, I wonder because it's really hard to clean off. Before there was like soap or any sort of aid, do you think people who worked with indigo just like were blue, like the blue man group, like just all the way up to their shoulders? Uh, yeah. Have you ever uh, seen the folks that like worked at Boisau when they were still in uh, in New York? Yeah, no, like the the gloves they use are just like the ones that go all the way up to like 
the shoulders on when people use the big indigo vats. So I'm just like wondering if people were using it back then, do you think they were just like blue all the time? Probably or like dark, darker than that. It was like um, the guy that works at the Levi's Eureka Lab, uh, Bart Seitz, very proud of his like black fingernails because he's like dipping his hands in indigo so much that it's like literally turned his fingernails black. It's um, flex. Like, weird. Yeah. But it's a flex. But okay. Yeah. Like, um, it's like you so weird like denim. I love denim. It's literally in my veins. <laughs> it's, it's, it's coursing through my bloodstream right now. Uh, so where did the indigo production in the United States go? Is that something that like continued on, uh, until synthesization was popular or, or you know, it definitely waned, uh, after it became as, you know, uh, things did after it became an incredibly valuable export. Um, people switched up their efforts. Um, it still grew well. So there was still indigo production. Absolutely. But it, it wasn't to the scale. Um, at one point, I believe it was half of the exports from South Carolina. It was never at that scale again. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, as uh, I guess Indigo sort of wound down, this uh, leads into the next subject that we've got going here, which is you know everyone's favorite footnote in elementary school, which is Eli Whitney and the Cotton Gin. Uh, which I think like every fourth grader in this entire country has to learn a sub, like a, a small unit on it, or at least like read one blurb in a textbook, but probably belies like how Eli Whitney might be the most like unwitting villain in all of American history. And like everything that he did just sort of beget evil upon this, like already somewhat evil country. Um, unwittingly, though our our very own pandora pretty much so like uh eli whitney and the cotton gin like uh if we go back to triangular trade like one of the biggest exports for the u.s was cotton but cotton farming was very costly and labor intensive which uh was a thing that removing the seeds from the cotton plant before it could be spun into yarn had to be done manually uh and it took about one person about 10 hours to clean the seeds out of one pound of cotton and that's just there, like basically picking through dryer lint and like yanking off these uh, like rough seeds that wouldn't be able to uh, be spun into yarn. And just to like put some scale on this, a, a pair of cotton denim jeans usually weighs about two pounds. So that would equate to about 20 like human hours of just picking through dryer lint in order to just spin the fabric, like spin the, the yarn to make the fabric for those jeans. Um, so a lot, a lot, a lot of human effort went into producing cotton. That's like sort of difficult for us to wrap our heads around in this day and age. Um, so in the 1780s, like slavery, as you mentioned, and like the practice of human bondage, uh, with, uh, indigo like growing was not, uh, growing by leaps and bounds at that point. It was like, thankfully sort of like minimizing because it was no longer a effective way to produce cotton. Um, and you know, slavery was still like one of the most evil institutions in human history, but you know, capitalism only stop when it's not profitable. And that's sort of what was happening at this point until enter our boy, Eli Whitney, who was a northerner that was tutoring the children of a plantation owner in Georgia. 
um, had the bright idea to develop a machine that could mechanically remove the seeds from cotton uh, in 1793. And now, with the invention of the cotton gin, two people could clean as much cotton as 100 people. So it was like a 50x like uh, increase in productivity. And Eli had this uh, very, very naive idea that he'd hoped the invention would lessen the need for uh, enslaved people to do the work because there wasn't as much work to do. But, uh, oh, Eli Whitney, you sweet summer child. Uh, the exact opposite happened. So the cotton gin made cotton farming much, much, much more profitable than it had been previously um, because it took a lot less effort and a lot less time to make the cotton sellable. And cotton growing exploded in the American South, which caused plantation owners to enslave way, way, way more people to plant and harvest the cotton and then run those cotton gins. Uh, so the industrial revolution in Europe was also booming at this time and created a huge demand for cotton to make into textiles and they didn't have nearly as much farming land, uh, and the climate, uh, conditions for growing it as the United States or slave labor uh, at that point or slave labor. Cause you know, they, uh, whether by conscience or whatever, they had started to abolish slavery in Europe. I but, can't imagine uh, it was conscience considering they were still both engaging in the triangles trade and and profiting off of it yeah is just just benefit you know that was their uh, slavery technology. privilege that they refused to acknowledge what, um, what a mess history is yeah uh, just to give a sense of like how much cotton production increased in the united states during this time period like the u.s produced about three thousand bales of cotton in 1790 which was uh absolutely skyrocketed to 3.8 million bales in 1860, which accounted for about 75% of the entire world's cotton supply. So just like growing by like over a thousand times, like sort of like uh, what we talked about earlier with the number of spindles and textile production. And it was like sort of directly related to each other. Um, and at the same time, the number of enslaved people in the United States increased by 600% in the same time period between 1790 and 1860, to the point that one in three people that lived in the American South in 1860 were enslaved. Um, and you know, life as an enslaved person in uh, the American South is almost inconceivably horrific, which, you know, if we talked about how life in the mills for the mill girls was rough, like it is on an entirely different like planet what was happening to enslaved people in the American South, um, which included, you know, 20 hour days in the field, beatings, family separation, like murder and maim, like uh, rampant sexual assault and abuse, complete disregard for uh, in enslaved people as people. And this is stuff that like uh, I we're going to get into this in the future with a history of denim that, you know, focuses entirely on the incredibly underexplored uh, story of denim and indigo fabrics as slave cloth in the United States that were often forced on enslaved people to do manual labor. But uh, we will cover that in a future episode to give it the time that it actually deserves. Um, in the meantime, I want to give a shout out to uh, the Great Blacks and Wax Museum in Baltimore, which uh, was like one of the best uh, examples, I believe, for getting my head around what 
the like I will never have any concept of what it was like to be an enslaved person in the American South, but it it gave me an entirely new I guess edification of what that was like. So when that opens again, uh, you should support the Great Blacks and Wax Museum. It is you know entirely run by people in that community and uh, gives a very unvarnished look uh, at what that life was like. Um, but in the meantime, Eli Whitney, uh, he had the good sense to patent the cotton gin, but you know, oddly enough, slave master plantation owners aren't the most ethical ind individuals and they ripped off his design. So he didn't really make any money from it. Um, ironically enough, he went into another field of arms manufacturing uh, continuing that uh, unwittingly evil streak, although this was probably much more wittingly, um, where he made guns for the United States government and in doing so developed the system of interchangeable parts, which was another like really, really big step forward for the Industrial Revolution. So like previously, uh, manufacturing production happened by single skilled workers from start to finish, sort of like what we're talking about with the uh, shoemaker doing everything from... Um, you know, lasting the, the boot to putting the laces on. But with interchangeable parts, individual pieces could be produced en masse and assembled separately as needed. Um, so Eli Whitney made it a lot cheaper and easier to make guns and uh, could argue that Eli Whitney effectively created the cause of and the weapons used in the Civil War. Um, yeah, not a great dude, Eli Whitney. I would much rather be the uh, Slater the Traitor than... Than Eli Whitney in the uh, American School Children textbooks. Say in the historical bad guy power rankings, Eli Whitney is is a little higher on the underrated yeah. ones. He's still on underrated charts, but it's it's an interesting take the the one you have. Oh I yeah, know it's scalding. It's like just warm. It's very. I I think it's very reasonable to say that he like is probably on a par for any other individual for greatest amount of human misery, like propagated at least within the borders of the United States. I mean, I think the, the big man, Henry Kissinger still goes out as like number one evil dude. Um, but we'll get into that when we get to the 1960s and seventies. So I guess to wrap up what we, uh, discussed in this last episode of like these two booms where we have the U S in the latter half of the 19th century, like, um, coming out of the civil war in like the 1860s, 1870s has one of the most like, sizable textile manufacturing industries in the world and is growing more than three quarters of the world's cotton supply. Um, so like all of the growing being done in the South and all the weaving being done in the North and primarily new England. And a lot of that cotton went into producing denim fabric and other workwear fabrics. Cause a lot of, you know, construction and work was happening, uh, in these new factories and mills that were being developed. Um, and the fabric that was produced by these mills was then shipped out all over the country to individual merchants who would then like sell the fabric to tailors and other local clothing makers um, that would turn it into you know pants, shirts, jackets, things of that nature, including one particular Bavarian dry goods seller who set up shop in San Francisco and his Latvian tailor customer in Reno, Nevada. Suppose we'll have to tease on that one and get into their story and more next time on part three in the history of denim. <laughs>